not too long after I became a Christian, at the age of 28, um, my newly adopted spiritual mentor asked me a question. First he said, Jim, I don't want you to answer me immediately. I want you to, to go home. I want you to sleep on this. I want you to think about it for at least 24 hours before you answer this question. And then come back and see me tomorrow and we'll talk. And he said, he said this. The question was, Jim, what would you give to possess the true knowledge of God? I can say that my immediate answer did not differ from my eventual answer 24 hours later, but the key was he made me think about it <laughs> um, for 24 hours. And the more I thought about it, the more I was in awe of the answer. So I'm going to ask you the question, but you only get two or three minutes. To think about it, as I first draw an analogy, uh, I think which aptly depicts uh, fallen mankind's predicament in, in this world. Let's say that your life and your eternity depends upon you successfully traveling to a far distant destination to which you have never been. You have never been to this place. Not only that, you have to go through hostile territory. Not only that, you have to present yourself wholly to the holy king who rules that domain. And oh yes, you have no food for this long journey. You have no map. You have no directions. You have no compass. You have no sword. You have no shield. You have no protection. You are blind, you are in utter and complete and total darkness, and you are painfully aware that you are not holy. If this analogy represents the, the state of rebellious and sinful fallen man before a holy God, and it does, what would you give? What would you give? For what you needed to make that journey. So it brings me back. I'm going to ask you, what would you give to possess the true knowledge of God? What would you give? Anyone? What would you give to possess the true knowledge of God? Nobody wants to share? That's alright. As I thought about that for 24 hours... My answer was, I would give anything for the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. I would give everything for the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. I would give all things for the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, if you come to that conclusion, which inevitably any right-thinking man must come to that conclusion, um, you will be overwhelmed by awe and wonder and joy and humility and amazement. Because that which you desperately needed, God has abundantly supplied. This 
dangerous spiritual journey to the celestial city, God has given you everything that you need. Our condition, our spiritual condition in this fallen world, it is beyond desperate. It is beyond uh, dire. It is beyond hopeless. Apart from God, it's impossible, beloved. So what would you give for the true knowledge of God. The knowledge of how to get to the celestial city. The knowledge of how to be reconciled to your Creator. What would you give? What would you give for that knowledge? Not only do we not have what we need for the journey, we do not have the means to acquire what we need for the journey. But because most of you have been in churches before, most of you know uh, at least something about the Bible, you realize that God has freely offered this to us. In, in God, in Christ, we have, we have spiritual uh, meat and spiritual drink. We have a compass. We have directions to the celestial city. We have protection. We have a sword and a, and a shield. We are no longer in absolute darkness. The Holy Spirit has regenerated our heart and the scales have fallen off and we can see. And because of what Jesus did, <laughs> we are now holy. That for which we would have given everything God has freely given to us. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, as Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, we have the true knowledge, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad we sang that song. How can we not sing, beloved? If it's real with you, now... I'm not talking about just being a church member. I'm talking about being born again and I'm talking about knowing Christ. John 17.3 How could we not sing? How can we not shout? How can we not walk with Him and be bold out in the world? Our great God, our benevolent God has given us everything, everything we need. Everything that we need. How can we not rejoice and give thanks and give ourselves to the study of this great gift, the Word of God? How can we, how can we not? I'm always amazed at how indifferent and apathetic men in general are towards the Bible. I mean, think about it. You know, the one true living Creator, God, has revealed Himself to mankind. And the vast majority of mankind doesn't seem to care at all. They could care less, actually. Um, at best, they ignore Him. At worst, they scorn and reject Him. As one theologian aptly said, this is suicidal insanity. If my analogy is true, ignoring God and His Word, ignoring the true knowledge of Christ, Rejecting the true knowledge of Christ, it's suicidal insanity. This was the theologian's definition of sin. Suicidal. Suicidal 
insanity. And inexplicably, even many who call themselves Christians don't seem really genuinely interested in the true knowledge of Jesus. They spend little to no time uh, in the Word of God, pursuing Him, getting to know Him, understanding what He has said, trying to live by His words. How is it possible that a true believer could be indifferent towards the words of Jesus? I have to say, I don't think a true believer can be. I think it's the classic oxymoron. So as we've seen thus far in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, to stay with the analogy, born-again believers have all they need for their journey. Because our God has given us the gift of miraculous salvation. Chapter 1, 1-4. through We have all we need for the journey because God has given us the miraculous gift of sanctification. Chapter 1, verses 5-11. through And we have all we need for our journey in God's gift of His miraculous revelation. Chapter 1, 12 through 21, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. God's revelation. Tonight, Peter reminds the Christian we have all we need for our dangerous journey to the celestial city, as John Bunyan called it in Pilgrim's Progress. We have it in the 66 books of the Bible. And I consciously say 66 books because as Protestants, we do not recognize the apocryphal books uh, that Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholicism recognize. We do not recognize that. Protestantism has adopted simply the Hebrew Bible. We simply adopted the same writings that the Hebrews have adopted as the Old Testament. They have 24 books. We have 39 books. It's all the same writings. Uh, they just condense some of their books. So I just wanted to, to mention that as well. Last week, Peter told us that his lifelong pursuit and greatest aspiration was, do you remember, to stir up the people of God by way of reminder. And I told you, that's what I get paid to do. That's my job, to stir you up. I'm not here to entertain you or be your life coach. I'm here to stir you up. I'm here to remind you that you belong to God and I'm here to remind you what God has said to you. And I'm here to exhort you to go out there and do it. Right? Remember I told you the job description of a preacher? Remind, exhort, remind, exhort, remind, exhort. That's it. You know, it's pretty easy. That's my job. is to remind you and exhort you And you may remember, Peter says, I don't have a retirement plan. He says, as long as I'm in this earthly tent, I will preach the Gospel. He says, I'm an eyewitness to the coming of Jesus, and I'm an eyewitness to His glorious return. And of course, what he's referencing there, as we saw last week, was his witness of Jesus' transfiguration. Verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The prophetic word mentioned here, of course, is all of the Old Testament. Because all of the Old Testament, either directly or indirectly, what? Points to whom? It all points to Jesus. It's all prophetic in one sense. It's Every bit of it is prophetic, and I think this is what Peter is communicating to us there. Now there are some 
um, nuances here in the various English translations of of this Greek text, and I just want to share them with you. The ESV, the English Standard Version says, and we have something more sure the prophetic word. The emphasis is that the prophetic word is more sure than the eyewitness account that Peter gave us last week. That's the emphasis in the English Standard Version. In the New King James Version it says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Just like my version, the NAS, says. Now, there are biblical, sound biblical theologians who support each of these translations. Peter is either saying the prophetic word is more sure than my eyewitness, which I don't have a problem with, or Peter is saying the prophetic word is confirmed by my eyewitness. I don't have a problem with that either. So I'm happy with either or translation. Yes, of course. All mature Christians, biblically uh, literate Christians, we understand that God's Word always trumps experience. We know from the Word, and some of us from real life experience, that that, uh, spiritual things can be counterfeited. Spiritual experience can be counterfeited. So God's Word always trumps experience. It always does. And I know you know this, if God's Word says something happened or something's going to happen, that means you can take it to the bank, it happened or it's going to happen. God's Word is sure. Isaiah says it in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God, someone tell me, it stands forever. It stands forever. So we stand firm on the Word of God whether we have an eyewitness or not. But in this case, the Lord has given us an eyewitness. Three of them, in fact. Peter, James, and John who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. The fact that Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured again, which foreshadows the glory of the second coming of Christ, it 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 does in fact confirm the Old Testament prophecy. So I I don't have a problem with either one of these translations. The prophetic word is more sure than the eyewitness account, or the eyewitness account confirms the prophetic word. These are the nuances. I just wanted to, to share them with you. I'm, I'm happy with either or or both. So in light of these facts, what we've seen thus far, what is the Holy Spirit's instruction to us in verse 19? Someone, can someone tell me from the text what, what is God's instruction to us in verse 19? What, what is He telling us to do? What is He telling the believer to do? To pay attention. You know, it echoes the whole thing of, of reminding. To pay attention. God says you do well to pay attention to My Word. God says you do well to focus on My Son and to focus on the promise of the return of My Son. This is exactly what is being communicated here. So let me ask you, what do you think the fruits of focusing on Jesus and Jesus' return might be in our lives. How do you think that might inform our lives if we do what God says here? 
If we focus on Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, and the promised return of Jesus Christ, how do you think that might impact our lives? How do you think that would affect the way you love your spouse? The way you handle uh, your relationships as a single person? How do you think it would impact the way you raise your kids or the way you serve this church while you're here or the way you handle your money or the way you do your job or how you speak or what you watch, etc., etc., etc.? How do you think it would impact those things if you are focused on Jesus Christ? Really focused on Jesus Christ, His Word, and His promised return. John tells us in 1 John 3.3, he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, talking about His return, purifies himself just as He is pure. You hear that, beloved? (laughs) So Peter's giving us some good counsel here. Focus on Jesus and the return of Jesus and you will purify yourself. You will purify yourself even as He is pure. There's a huge dividend here for us, beloved. A huge dividend for us if we will do what God has called us to do. Peter says, stay in the Word. Stay on God in the Word. Stay on the promise of Jesus' imminent return. Because the Word and the promise are like a lamp. They are our lamp. That's why I read Psalm 119, and that last verse, 105, the Word of God is, someone tell me, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We're supposed to be looking at the lamp. We're supposed to be looking at the Word of God, the promises of God. That's our light. That's why we can make good progress toward the celestial city. Because we have God's Word. We have the lamp that He has given us. We don't look to the left. We don't look to the right. Is that correct? Justo? We don't look to the left. We don't look to the right. Right? Correct? Is that how it is in your life? I don't look to the left. I don't look to the right. I look at the lamp. I stay on the lamp. I stay on the Word of God. I stay on the promises of God. It keeps you pure, beloved. And we know none of us are perfect. We understand. But it has a purifying effect in your life to be looking at Jesus. And to be looking at that promised soon-to-come return. You remember the counsel that Solomon gives, Proverbs 4, 23-27. Watch over your heart with all, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life in your heart. Jesus is first, right? <laughs> Jesus is first. Solomon continues, Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. That is part of what God is saying to us tonight, beloved. Keep our eyes on that lamp. This is how the Christian makes this difficult journey to the celestial city with our eyes fixed on the promise of Jesus' return until He comes. That's what this term means. That's what this phrase means. Until the the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. Until Jesus splits the sky, until He splits the sky, keep your eyes on the lamp. What's the lamp? Someone tell me. What's the lamp? Jesus Christ and the Word of God and the promised return of Jesus Christ. That's the lamp. 
That's the Lamb. Keep your eyes on the lamp until Jesus splits the skies. Verses 20 to 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So I just want to take a minute and, and just remind you about the purpose and flow of Peter's letter. We know in chapter 2 he's going to... Uh, uh, really come down on false teachers. That's the, the prime thrust of, of Second Peter. And he's reminded us in the first chapter again that we have a divine salvation. We have a divine sanctification. And he's talking about tonight, we have a divine revelation. The Word of God. That's what he's talking about here. Obviously, in verses 20 and 21, we have a divine revelation. Remember what he said last week? He said, man, I didn't make this stuff up. You know, like all religions do and pseudo-Christianity does. I didn't make it up. It's in the Word of God. I saw it. I experienced it. I know Jesus Christ. I knew Him before He was crucified. I knew Him after. I ate with Him before. I ate with Him after. I laughed with Him before. I laughed with Him after. He's a credible. He's a credible witness. Peter says this is a divine revelation. It is a divine revelation. Beloved, how can we be indifferent? How can we be indifferent to the Word of God? How can we go weeks and not look at it? How can we not be in it, learning about God, rejoicing at all the promises He's made, and worshiping at how He has saved us and redeemed us, in verse 16 to 18, Peter told us that he's an eyewitness to the coming and glory of Jesus. Verse 19, Peter says, this was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus. Then in verse 20 and 21, Peter's reminding us of the origin and nature of Old Testament prophecy. It's from God. He's telling us that the Old Testament prophecy was not and are not the words of men. It is the words of God. It's the supernatural revelation of God. And let me just make a point. Uh, the way verse 20 reads in the three best English translations, in my opinion, the three best English translations are the New American Standard, the New King James, and the English Standard Version. The, version. the way it reads... I think sometimes is misunderstood. At first reading, you might think that the focus is on the reader and how the reader is interpreting it. I would uh, venture a guess that many of you, when you read that verse, that's what you're hearing. That it's talking about the reader and how the reader is going to interpret the verse. Which, if correct, Peter is simply telling us that God does not allow the reader to lay his own personal interpretation on Scripture. Now, I know we hear this all the time. People will tell me all the time, well, that's your interpretation. I said, I'm not interested in my interpretation, to be, all, to be honest with you. I'm trying to exposit the text. I'm trying to understand God's interpretation. And we know that we are fallible. We know that we can make error. But he's not really focusing on the reader and the interpretation of the reader. While it's always true 
that a person cannot lay his own personal interpretation on Scripture. Peter's, I think Peter's principal meaning here is clearly seen in the NIV. Now the NIV, as you know, is not my favorite translation. But in this case, it really, uh, it really nails it on, on the head. The NIV says, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own, get this, by the prophet's own interpretation. One paraphrase actually says it like this, no, no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophets themselves. This is really the point that Peter is driving home. He's not principally talking about how Scripture is interpreted. He's principally talking about how Scripture originated. Okay, That's what I want you to understand. He's not talking about uh, how the reader interprets, but how uh, the writer was inspired and how we received the Word of God which originated in God Himself. The primary point is not the reader's interpretation, but the writer's inspiration. So I, I hope that uh, I've made that clear. We understand the Bible was, was written by men, but not only, merely, or simply by men. The Bible claims to be divine. The Bible claims to have divine authorship. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. Almost 4,000 times in the Old Testament alone. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. So the men who wrote Scripture, they are not the origin of the truths communicated. They are the channel of the truths communicated. I want to make sure we get that. The Bible is a book recorded by men, but it is authored by God. I'm pretty sure that probably most of you in here are comfortable with that. But if you're not, come talk to me. I'll be glad to talk to you about it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, God, the Holy Spirit, tells us how He used His chosen instruments in recording the supernatural revelation of God. That is, the 66 books of the Bible. So let me interject here. As Bible-believing Christians, we know there is a natural revelation, right? We know there is a, a natural revelation. What is the natural revelation of God? Who wants to tell me? What is the natural revelation of God? The creation. It's what the women have just studied in Romans chapter 1. You, you, you may remember Paul's Words in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Men are without excuse simply because the, the natural realm is so awesome. It demands an awesome Creator. It demands Him. He must be there. He cannot not be there. I don't care what the guys say at university. They tried to tell me that too. You know, and I tried to make sense of it, but I could never make sense of it. I could never make sense of it. I don't want to go down that path because it won't be good for either one of us if I go down that path. The Creator God's genius and His power and His beauty they are conspicuous, right? His fingerprints are everywhere to be seen. 
All you have to do is look in the mirror. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We are fearfully. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I always loved Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Psalm 19, 1 and 2. God's glory is on tour in the skies. Godcraft is on exhibit across the horizon. Madame Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures every evening. It's as God says in Romans 1, men are without excuse. There is no excuse. There's a natural revelation. God is there. I am accountable to this great God. I must be. I'm one of His creatures. There is a natural revelation, beloved. So as Christians, we, we understand that. God has revealed Himself in the natural order. But God has gone on to reveal Himself supernaturally through His supernaturally delivered Word of God. Delivered and preserved, I might say. Some of you will be familiar with the famous quote. Mike and I were talking about it. Wednesday night, Bertrand Russell is a famous atheist in 20th century England. And someone asked him, they said, well, what if you meet God after you die? What are you going to say to Him? He's an atheist now. He said, what are you going to say to Him? Anybody know what he said? He said, I'll tell Him He didn't give me enough evidence. I heard Richard Dawkins, the, you know, I guess maybe the foremost atheist in, in our day, say exactly the same thing. I was disappointed. I thought he would at least come up with some original information or, you know, something that he thought up himself. And I would say to these men, and all who echo these men, wrong! Wrong! God is evident in the created order. God has made Himself clear in the revealed Word and in the incarnate Word which is Jesus Christ. As we discussed in both men's and young adults' Bible studies this week, it's not that men don't know God's there, it's that they do know God is there. It's not that men don't understand what God is saying, it's that they do understand what God is saying. It's not that men don't get it, it's that men don't like it. Beloved, this is what the Bible teaches about fallen man in the face of God's gracious and overwhelming revelation of Himself in nature and in Scripture, it's clear that men want to not believe. They want, they want to not believe. So back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. God the Holy Spirit is describing how He used men to reveal and record His Word. Uh, this revelation did not come by, as you saw, from any act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Regarding this, regarding the Bible, this is the, the theological term here, which I'm, most, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, is inspiration. Inspiration would be defined like this, the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen men to compose and record without error God's revelation. So this means that God's divine truth flowed through the minds and the souls and the hearts and the emotions and ultimately the pens of these men. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word translated inspired literally means it is breathed out by God. It is from God. 
It is. The Word of God is God breathed. In verse 21, the Greek verb translated moved or born along or carried along in the English, it's the same word used in Acts talking about Paul's ship being carried along by, by the, the, the wind of the storm. It's a beautiful word picture. Uh, the writers of Scripture were carried along by the Spirit of God as they recorded what God purposed to be recorded. Okay, now we understand that Peter is clearly talking about the Old Testament here. The New Testament is yet to to be compiled. He's talking about the Old Testament. But what about the New? Are the New Testament writings God-breathed like the Old Testament writings? The Christian church has always said yes. A resounding yes with good cause. Jesus said to His men, let me just give you a couple of verses from the New Testament. Jesus said to His men, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot uh, hear them now. But when He the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Apostle Paul says, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may uh, know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Just one more. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brethren, that the Gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Galatians 1, 11 and 12. So the Christian doctrine that emerges from the words of the Bible is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the divine author of the 66 books of the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. This is the testament of Scripture. In Scripture, the person of God and the Word of God are everywhere interrelated. Did you hear what I said? I know I'm teaching more tonight than preaching, but it's just the the verse demands it, okay? So, the person of God and the Word of God are everywhere interrelated. So much so that whatever is true about the character of God is also true about the nature of God's Word. God is true. God is impeccable. God is reliable. Therefore, so is His Word. What a person, listen to this, this is what I want you to hear me say, what a person thinks about God's Word in reality is a reflection about what he thinks about God. I'm going to say that again. What a person thinks about God's Word in reality reflects what that person thinks about God. I do not believe that those who hold a low view of Scripture, namely, that the Bible contains truth, but contains error, uh, that's the person that holds a low view of Scripture, I don't think they have an intellectually honest position. On the one hand, they say the Bible contains God's Word. On the other hand, they say it contains errors. So on the one hand, they say He's God. He's God, but on the other hand, they're saying He's not God enough to reveal Himself 
and preserve it for His people. That's really the undercurrent of what is being said. He's just not God enough. He's a pathetic kind of God. He wants to preserve His Word for His people, but He can't get it done. His creatures have hijacked His revelation. And it's full of error. And men, smart men, learned men, uh, men with a lot of letters behind their name, they, they have to stand over the Word of God and say, well, this is, this is true and this is false. I, I shudder for these men. I tremble for these men. Who stand in judgment over the Word of God, beloved. Any so-called pastor who tells you that there's error in the Word of God, run. He's not a called of God minister, I assure you that. He's got his own agenda. This feeble God, he lost control. He's pathetic. He wanted us to know the truth, but he couldn't get it done. Beloved, I'm sorry. The God of the that, that is not I am. That is not Jehovah God. Jehovah God is able. A God who can effortlessly speak 400 plus billion galaxies into existence is going to have no trouble revealing Himself and preserving the revelation of Himself. I'm not sure I can think of any greater insult to God. I'm sure there is one, but at this moment I can't think of a greater insult to say that God's Word contains error. I just don't think it's an intellectually honest position you really have to say either the, the God of the Bible is not God, therefore the Bible doesn't really matter. Or you have to say the God of the Bible is God, therefore it's the Word of God. And it mirrors His person and His character. So let me just say in closing, let me say a word about the subjective evidence of the Bible in the believer's heart. All of you who are here tonight who are born again believers, you've had this experience this self-authenticating experience with God's Word. You're reading His Word and God speaks to you. You hear Him. You fall in love with Him there. You meet with Him there. It's a very real, it's a very real proposition. We have this subjective, the true believer, the born-again believer, the, the, the regenerate soul has this self-authenticating uh, experience with God in the Word. And as we read it, we hear the truth about God, we hear the truth about ourselves, and we hear the truth about the Word, and we go, the world I mean, and we go, yes, that's right! I love how C.S. Lewis said, he says, I've come to believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun I see everything else. Beloved, by the Word of God, doesn't, it, doesn't the world at least in some measure make more sense? Doesn't the way that you see the world, doesn't it line up with what God has told us about the world? about our origin and about our fall. So you remember the analogy that I drew at the beginning of the sermon, the long, dangerous, impossible spiritual journey that we must make? None of us, none of us can make 
that supernatural journey, that spiritual journey without God's provision. We, can, we cannot do it. So God and His Word are our spiritual meat and drink. God and His Word are our map and our compass. God and His Word are our sword and our shield. God's Spirit through His Word has healed our blind eyes. And God's saving work through Jesus has afforded us imputed righteousness. So in closing, let me say, if you're an unbeliever tonight, you know, if you don't really know Christ tonight, you must run to Jesus because you cannot make this journey. You cannot make this journey without the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for believer, I want to say to you, God has given you all that you need for this journey. You possess the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. That for which you would have readily given everything, He has freely given to you. You know, God's blessings just shower down like soft rain on the believer. It just never stops. He's given you everything that you need. So, as I always do, I exhort you to be strong. To be strong and do exploits in the world. I'm going to close. I just want to read... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, And for this reason we, have, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe.